is 1 Peter 4, 7 and Colossians 3, 1 through 4. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. This is the word of the Lord. Well, um, Christ Church is a church that we've really endeavored to build uh, on the doctrine of grace, the, the main idea of our church as many of you know, is that uh, the gospel changes everything. The the freeing love of Jesus Christ for sinners uh, has a revolutionary, transformative impact on those who believe. And and the gospel works its way through our lives from the inside out. That is what we have proclaimed from day one. That is what we are about as a church. But the question I want us to ask in this mini-teaching series is, what does it look like to rest and grow into Jesus' love. Uh, Last week, I spoke about how this year we want to float. Uh, We want to float on the river of God's love, and and I still want to say amen to that. Uh, But a a further question needs to be asked and hopefully answered, and that's how. How do you do that? Let me put it a little better, perhaps. Um, Does this idea that we float on the river of God's love mean that we should make no changes or attempt to make no changes in our daily lives. I don't think that's what it means. In fact, I think uh, we tend towards hearing about grace and love on Sunday and then not really living in that love to the degree that any of us would wish to, not floating in that love on Mondays through Saturdays, maybe for fear that we're being legalists, maybe for some other reason. I just want to say, I think that's a weakness in our church. Um, This is something I've been considering for some time now. I think every church has weaknesses. We should just name ours and work on those things. So so I want us to ask, how do we live in God's love? How do we float in the river of God's love? And the answer is by practicing daily life with Jesus. The answer is that we grow in grace by believing the gospel, and then our belief in the gospel is filtered It's filtered through spiritual habits where God meets with us through his spirit and forms and fashions us into Christian maturity. So if we're going to mature as Christians, um, we must develop, we must develop spiritual habits. We must regularly practice what our tradition uh, in the church calls the means of grace through which God's Spirit abides with us. And and I think the Bible is very clear here. If if we do not do that, we should not expect to grow. It's it's really that plain and simple. And so this series is intended to give us a little bit of an intense and intentional focus on the idea of habits, spiritual habits. Charles Duhigg has written a book that he calls The Power of Habit, uh, from which I'm taking the title for this teaching series. And in this book, Duhigg presents research Uh, into neuroscience and brain chemistry and how developing good habits changes individual people for the better. And he writes about what he calls keystone habits, keystone habits. These are habits that trigger change 
not just in one area of life, but in many other areas of life. So, for example, exercise, not surprisingly, is a keystone habit. So for those who develop a habit of regular exercise, that good habit overflows into other areas of life that aren't just involved with being physically fit or flexible or strong. So for example, if you're exercising regularly, it's easier for you then to have good sleep habits, to go to bed on time, to get up on time. It's easier for you to eat in a healthy way. That's what a keystone habit is, a habit that when you're practicing it overflows into other areas of your life. Listen to what Duhigg writes, quote, If you focus on changing or cultivating keystone habits, you can cause widespread shifts. Keystone habits offer what is known within academic literature as small wins. That is, they help other habits to flourish by creating new structures. And they establish cultures where change becomes contagious. And then he gives a practical example of how keystone habits form us over time. Listen to what he writes next. That's why signing kids up for piano lessons or sports is so important. It has nothing to do with creating a good musician or a five-year-old soccer star. When you learn to force yourself to practice for an hour or run 15 laps, you start building self-regulatory strength. A five-year-old who can follow the ball for 10 minutes becomes a sixth grader who can start his homework on time. So here's the question. What are the keystone habits that we must develop If we're to grow deeper in Jesus, if we're going to grow deeper in his love, what practices must we inhabit to float on the river of God's love? That's what we're thinking about for the next four Sundays. There's four of them that we're going to look at. They're prayer, Sabbath, friendship, and moderation. Today we're going to look at prayer, which is the most important of all of them. And I want to use these two passages that Madison read for us, 1 Peter 4, 7. Colossians 3, 1 through 4, to make four points about prayer. So let's move through these points. First, the context of prayer. Second, the discipline of prayer. Then the power for prayer. And finally, the practice of prayer. Okay, so first, the context of prayer. If you have that 1 Peter 4, 7 verse open, just camp out there with me for a minute. Peter wrote this letter to a church that was spread all over the Roman Empire and that was persecuted and hurting. Uh, This was a church that was facing crisis, crisis in the middle of the ancient world. And, And in this letter, Peter wants Christians to learn how to live in light of crisis, how to live in light of the true crisis that we're all facing. Do you know we're facing a crisis right now? I know that's shocking to all of us, right? What the the story of the scripture tells us, though, is that our main crisis is not a public health crisis, and it's not an economic crisis, and it's not a political crisis. Look at what Peter writes. He says the true crisis is an eternal crisis. He writes, the end of all things is at hand. That means that there is a day coming soon in which God in Jesus will return and judge the world in righteousness. That's a clear takeaway from the Bible. Hebrews 9 says... It's destined for every man to die once and face judgment. Now, when you hear verses like that, the end is near. I don't know if you're like me, but what I think of is the homeless guy on the streets of Manhattan with the A-frame sign over his shoulders with a crazy look in his face that says on the sign, the end is near. We hear that and think that guy is off his or her rocker. 
And if you're thinking that, welcome to what I was thinking as I looked at this passage this week. And I love how Tim Keller comments on this verse. Listen to what he writes. Keller says, the world says, if you live as if the end is near, you're crazy. Do you want to know what the paraphrase of this text is? 1 Peter 4, 7. It could be translated, if you don't live as if the end is near, you're crazy. Only if you see that the end is near, do you get sane. How could this be? It's really quite simple. If there's a God, if there are moral absolutes, if it's really true, therefore, there will be a reckoning. And if there's going to be a reckoning, to live as if there won't be a reckoning is crazy. That's the context in which all of us live our lives, and it's the context for prayer. Jonathan Edwards, famous 18th century theologian, famously says, God, stamp eternity on my eyeballs. Stamp eternity on my eyeballs. He wanted to live his life in light of the day of the Lord, in light of what is going to happen one day. And I think we can understand this if we just think about it in practical ways in our own lives. Many years ago, when Marianne and I got engaged, I was a seminary student, and I had a calendar on my desk, and I wrote in marker the day of our wedding on the calendar. And I kept that day in mind. And guess what? I lived my life then in light of what was happening. Knowing I was going to get married on this date, for example, affected the relationships I was willing or or unwilling to enter into. It affected the way I spent my money. It affected the physique that you see before you this morning, right? Uh, I tried to get into shape. It affected all kinds of things in my life because I was living in light of what was coming. Now, the scriptures tell us that if we live in light of the end, in light of the fact that the end of all things is at hand, in light of eternity, we must be people of habitual prayer. And so the question the text asks of us is, what are you living in light of? What date is marked on your calendar that you're orienting your days around? For the believer, it's to be the day when Christ returns. That's the context that generates the habit of prayer. So the end is at hand. Therefore, what are we to do? Let's look at that second, okay? We see the discipline of prayer. Um, Jesus is coming back. He's going to judge this world with justice. And so what does Peter say? Look at what he writes next. Be self-controlled and sober-minded. Why? in order that you may pray, or for the sake of your prayers. So in light of the end of all things, Peter calls us to pray with self-control and sober-mindedness. Now, sober-mindedness is not something we think much of in our world. I bet none of you in the last week have had a conversation with a friend, and he said, hey, what have you been up to? And he said, man, I've just been working on sober-mindedness. I bet 0.0% of us have had that conversation. We don't think about sober-mindedness much, but it's in the Bible all the time. Paul, in just the pastoral epistles, calls Christians to be sober-minded 10 times. And Peter says the same thing here. So what does it mean to be sober-minded? Well, the word literally in the original language is, is the opposite of being deranged. To be sober-minded literally is to be sane. It's the opposite of living living in in a frenzied and manic state. So what is Peter saying? The scripture's telling us that prayer is the sane, lucid 
response of a Christ follower to the happenings of his or her life. Prayer is the means by which we experience what Paul in Romans 12 calls the renewal of our minds. So clearly, the scriptures do not see the twin realities of, on the one hand, listen, on the one hand, resting in God's great love and grace, and on the other hand, striving and working with self-control and sober-mindedness in prayer, the scripture doesn't see those two things as contradictory or as mutually exclusive. In fact, in the scripture, they reinforce each other. Learning to pray, learning self-control, and working at it with discipline is how, it is how we more and more enjoy the presence of God. It's how we more and more float in the love of God. If you have in your life as a follower of Jesus thought, why am I not experiencing what the scriptures say Christians are supposed to experience? The answer almost inevitably is because your prayer life is weak. Because prayer is the way we experience God's peace, which surpasses understanding. It's the way we experience God's joy and love and life. I'm a basketball fan, and I had a, a, a clip sent to me a couple of weeks ago of Steph Curry, shooting guard for the Warriors, um, in a practice shooting the corner three, and uh, he makes 105 consecutive three-pointers. And uh, not a single one was, like, off the rim either. They're all nothing but net. And it is just amazing to watch because in every shot, his form is exactly the same. He jumps the exact same height off of the floor. He comes down balanced. His base is perfect. It's a perfect jump shot. And I thought, how did Steph Curry get to where he could shoot that well? And the answer is genetics, (laughs) to be honest. But it's also, it's not only genetics, it's also, it's not that Steph Curry woke up one day and was able, even given his genetics, to drain 105 straight corner threes. It didn't just magically happen. It came from hours and hours and hours of self-controlled and disciplined practice in learning how to shoot a jumper. And his muscle memory has developed to such an extent that he doesn't even, at this point in his life, have to think about it. He's been practicing it his entire life. And listen, that is how the scriptures speak to us about our habit of prayer. That's what it means to do it with self-control and sober-mindedness. So how are you doing there? How's your self-control? How's your sober-mindedness in prayer? Listen, I am more and more convinced that, um, especially in our particular theological tradition, we, um, we don't pray. We don't pray with more regularity or with more spirit-driven power. And I think the main reason is because we don't really believe prayer changes anything. We just don't think it works. Let me tell you what we've done. You Reformed theologians, I think all of us are guilty of this, we have inserted via the back door of really good theology. The really good theology is God is sovereign, God is providentially controls everything, but we've inserted into the back door of that good theology the really bad theological conclusion that prayer is limited because of who God is. But listen, I really want, if you only hear one thing, this might be what you need to hear. 
The fact is, all over the Bible, we see that prayer from regular people provokes God. It changes what God will do. You may not like that, but if you don't like it, you are not yet the full biblical theologian you might think you are. Um, I'll even say, because people pray, things happen that would not have otherwise happened. If you don't believe it, just read the Bible. James chapter 5. Here's what James writes. The prayer of a righteous man has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man, and this is poorly translated. Really what James is saying is, Elijah was just a regular guy. And you think, Elijah wasn't a regular guy. He's in the Bible. The Bible says right here, Elijah's a regular guy. Regular guy. He's just like us. But what did Elijah do? He prayed fervently. Fervently that it might not rain. And for three and a half years, it didn't rain. And then Elijah prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruits. Think about Exodus. Exodus chapter 2, verses 23 and 24. Here's what Moses writes. The people of Israel groaned because of their slavery. And listen to the word, they cried out. They cried out for help. And their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning and God remembered the covenant he had made with Abraham and Isaac and with Jacob. God is provoked by the prayers of his people. God is moved by the prayers of his people. This world is impacted by a generation of people who believe that prayer, when it's done fervently, when we cry out to the Lord, when we do it with self-control, when we keep practicing it, makes a massive difference in our lives and in this world. That's what the discipline of prayer does. Let me show you next, the power for prayer. One of the things I love about being a Christian, one of the things I love most about the Christian life is that God gives what he requires of us. God gives what he requires. He asks us to pray fervently. He tells us, pray without ceasing. Pray with self-control. Pray with sober-mindedness. But God, in his grace, doesn't just leave us to ourselves to do these things. Instead, what he does is is he gives us himself. He gives us his own spirit and, and his own power in and through the reality of life in Jesus Christ. That's what that Colossians 3 passage that Madison read is about. Look at that passage. This is Paul. And under the Spirit's inspiration, he he tells us to do two things. He says, verse 1, seek the things that are above. And then verse 2, set your minds on the things that are above. So undoubtedly, right? Those two things, at least in part, refer to prayer. They're echoing what Peter said in 1 Peter 4. But then look at what Paul does. He grounds his admonitions to do those things in the reality of what's true of us. Of what's true of us who are united to Jesus in faith. He says, verse 1, since you have been raised with Christ. Notice that's past tense. Since you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. For you have died, past tense. And your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, you'll also appear with him in glory. So because of what has happened to us in the gospel, because we have died through union with Jesus so that sin no longer reigns over us or has mastery over us, and we've been raised up to new life through the resurrection of Jesus so that we're now heirs with him and sons and daughters of the Father, and because we're going to inherit all things in the renewal of this world, because all of that's true, 
we now have spiritual power to seek the things that are above, to pray. Indeed, if Christ is our life, if our lives are hidden with Christ in God, in a sense, the most natural thing for you in the world to do is to pray. Romans 8 also profoundly shapes our confidence and desire for prayer. Romans 8, Paul tells us that the Holy Spirit himself cries out, the same word Exodus 2 used, cries out when we cry out, Abba, Father. And then later in the chapter, verse 26 or 27, we read, the Spirit helps us and intercedes for us with groaning too weak for words when we don't know what to pray for and we almost never know what to pray for. That's the power for prayer. Here's what the scriptures say. God empowers our prayer by, and only Christianity does this, God empowers our prayer by praying for us himself. Every single time any Christian on the planet prays, Jesus is praying with that person in heaven and the Spirit is praying with that person in their heart. The the dance of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, is taking place in prayer every single time we pray, weak and confused and frail though our prayers may be. And listen, that's a stunning reality if you can begin to grasp it in faith because it tells us that there's never a point where we're without God. There's never a point where we're without God in our lives where we're outside of the reigning and gracious love of Father, Son, and Spirit together in perfect harmony, working everything for our good. We're so wrapped up in God that God himself prays for us. (laughs) He prays with us for our good. He, He pours out his spirit into our hearts to pray for us. He gives us himself. And so, church, church, I want to invite you this year I want to challenge you and call you to go deeper with your Father in prayer. I want you to cry out. To cry out to God this year in prayer. Because the Spirit cries out with us and for us. I I love that verb, cry out. We know this as children, uh, as parents. Imagine, even if you're not a parent, you can understand this. Um, Imagine that you're having a conversation with a friend during a play date at a park. And let's imagine that the park is in the city. So there's the sounds of horns and sirens and traffic all around you. And and let's imagine the park is crowded. There's all kinds of kids there all over the place. And you're trying to have a conversation. And the conversation's pretty personal and important. And your kids are off playing. And you hear your kid, you know, speak out to you. Hey, mom. Or hey, dad. And you know, just instinctively as a parent, the level of speaking they're giving. This is the kind of speaking where they, you know, they just want you to watch them jump off of the slide or something like that, right? And there's other times where your kids will call out, Mom! Dad! And, and you might be a little bit bothered. You might, okay, I'm trying to talk. That's really neat. But when your children cry out, you as a parent immediately know what that means. And you will stop your conversation. You will get up and you'll run towards your child. Listen. God wants his people to cry out, to cry out to him. He's provoked and moved and affected by your crying out. He responds to our calls, to our cries. And and listen, he's given us the power to do just that. 
Some of you haven't experienced this much, maybe at all in your life. Some of you think, I sound like a wacko charismatic right now, and I don't care if that's what you think. I could care less. I want you to think this, because this is what the scriptures teach. So if you've never experienced that, the only way to get there is to form a habit. It's to begin. Some of the guys in our church are runners, which is one of many reasons we've got a lot of issues here. We've got runners. Who runs? Who does this? And uh, I don't like running, but I have run in my life. Not away from the police, but sometimes just for fun. I'll go run to try and get into shape. And, and people that are runners will say, you know, you just have to get to where you have the runner's high. And I was like, well, when does the runner's high come? And they're like, about mile eight. I'm like, mile eight? I need the runner's high at mile 1.25. But no, the runner's high doesn't get to me until mile eight. I'll never get to mile eight unless I start slowly running a quarter of a mile, and then running half a mile, and then maybe in five years I'll be able to run one mile. And eventually I'll experience the joy that apparently, (laughs) allegedly, runners, can you believe this, Kevin? Runners experience joy. I can't believe it either. Apparently you experience joy as a runner. That's how some of you feel about prayer. You're like, how can prayer be joyful? You need to get the prayers high. And that only comes by practice. It only comes by habits, like Steph Curry shooting a jumper. You're not going to wake up tomorrow and be able to do that unless you commit yourself to it. And over time, because the Holy Spirit is with you, you will be able to experience God's presence in prayer, in really profoundly intimate ways. Some of you know what that means. Some of you know what that's like. You'll be able to know that the Spirit is really and truly with you. It's almost a physical sensation. That comes through practice, and it comes through patience. It comes through the disciplined practice of prayer, and I'm calling you to that church. I want to challenge us in that. I want to challenge myself in it. Let's commit to crying out to God this year. Lastly, uh, the practice of prayer. Just a couple of things here, friends. How are we going to do that? Well, we're going to help each other in the power of habit. We've got to form and develop spiritual habits, keystone habits, to experience the love of God more. Listen, the world is just going, it's collapsing around us. Lives are caving in all over the place. We're anxious and we're fearful and we're bewildered. And listen, we cannot repair what's happening in the world. We can't figure out the political solutions. We can't give all the answers to the people that actually make the decisions, even if we think we know what the answers are. But what we can do is pray. We can cry out to God. So I want you to just start. Can you just start? If you aren't already doing it, start slow. Run the quarter of mile in prayer. How do you do that? I think just some practical tools might be helpful. Uh, You need to probably get a time and a place. That's usually uh, helpful. That's what I do. My time and my place is on my couch, sitting up uh, early in the morning, either before the kids go to school or right after the kids go to school with Marianne. Uh, Generally, a time and a place helps us form patterns. And and then once you have a time and a place, I think a great practice is to practice the pathway of scripture to meditation to prayer. Read a passage of the scripture and then meditate on it. And I don't mean you're doing like breathing exercises and yoga for 40 minutes. That's not what I mean necessarily, although that might, might be helpful. I don't know. But what I mean is just as you think something's interesting in the passage you're reading, or as you're wondering about something. That's not unusual for Christians. That that something has a name. 
That's the Holy Spirit. He's prompting you. Just as an example, this week, on Thursday, I read Psalm 5. Remember, on Wednesday, what happened with the Capitol building and all that stuff. And on Thursday, I read Psalm 5, and Psalm 5 has a verse that says, God despises the deceitful and bloodthirsty man. And I thought, hmm, I felt this prompting. And so that led me to pray for the deceit we see in our country and what seemed to be a pretty bloodthirsty event on Wednesday and violence. And then the next day, I read Psalm 6. And and Psalm 6 speaks about God being a rock and a refuge for his people. And, And I thought, man, that's great. It wasn't anything magical or crazy. It was just the Holy Spirit prompting my heart. And so that's what my prayer was focused on that day. That's what I'd encourage you to do. You you need to find habits that help form your prayer habit. My habit is walking miles. Miles is our dog. Miles takes like 18 walks a day, seems like. So I've been doing a lot of prayer. Um, Miles has made my life worse in almost every way except prayer. Just kidding. I like the dog a little bit. But if any of you want a dog, feel free to email or text me. Um, When I take Miles for a walk, I will not put in headphones. I'll, I'll just spend time praying. Maybe for you, it's listening to music. Maybe for you, it's, it's driving in your car. I don't know what it is, but your prayer habits or your other habits can inform your prayer habits. And then use resources. That's why we're sending out, beginning tomorrow, this daily worship guide, which is just a way for us to help you. It's just a very simple collection of scriptures for you to read, and then some example prayers for you to pray. That's something I'd encourage you to participate in if you don't already have a prayer plan. And one of the advantages of that is that we're doing it together as a church, collectively crying out to God in the same way. Read books on prayer. Listen to podcasts on prayer. But don't just read books and listen to podcasts. Actually pray. And then the last thing is just keep doing it even when you don't feel like it. Um, Jonathan Haidt has written this book called The Coddling of the American Mind. And he says one of the main lies that young people in our culture have been taught is that if you don't feel like doing something, it's a bad thing to do. And I think that's true in our prayer lives. You're not being a legalist when you wake up and don't feel like praying, but you pray anyway. You're not being a legalist when you're about to go to bed and you don't feel like praying and you pray anyway. That's going to happen. The scripture calls us and the Holy Spirit helps us to press through, to develop the habit to devote ourselves with self-control and sober-mindedness to prayer. It's the most important keystone habit we can have if we want to experience what it looks like to float in the love of God. Let me close with this story. There's this guy who was telling me about this book. I haven't read the book yet, but it's a book called Mountain Rain. Mountain Rain. It's about this missionary named James Frazier. And uh, James Frazier had felt called to minister to unreached people groups that live in East Asia, specifically in the Himalaya mountains. And his camp where he lived was down at the bottom of the mountains. And what he would do was spend like multiple days trekking up into the highlands of the Himalayas where there are no roads. He would have to walk and do some services and some counseling and some discipleship and then spend two more days trekking back. But oftentimes the weather would be so bad that he was unable to go visit these people. The passes were closed. And so at one point, James Frazier tried an experiment. He said, what I'm going to do is transfer all of my travel time into prayer time. And I'm going to see at the end when I'm able to go back and visit these various 
groups of people, who has matured the most? Where the most fruitfulness is? Will it be the people in the lowlands that I've been relatively quick to visit and therefore have not prayed for as much? Or will it be the really far-off isolated people in the highlands of the Himalayas? And you can see where this is going, can you not? When he was finally able to go back, it was indeed the people furthest away, most isolated, that he had been most physically distanced from, that were deeper in Jesus and had more spiritual power and more Christian maturity. I want us to do an experiment as a church. Think about the prayer in your life that you think would just be absolutely ludicrous if God answered it. It's impossible. It's impossible for God to answer this prayer. And why don't you pray that this year? You're not committing God to answering his prayer, but I guarantee you, the more you pray, the more God is provoked. You know why? Because God exists in a relationship with you. He's not a figment of our theological imagination that is a construct we read about in a book. He's a person. And the more you plead with him and cry out to him, the more he's impacted. That's his heart. This is a year of prayer. This is a year of prayer that we develop the habit and see if God can really do more in us than we thought was possible or than we think we can imagine now. I'm excited about that. I hope you are too.